Happy Thursday, everybody, and welcome to episode 72 of the Snyder Cut. I am your host, Jeff Snyder, senior film reporter at Collider, and we've got a jam-packed show for you today. Last week, we had our pal John Roca on, had some good discussions, kind of, you know, switched up the format a little bit, but this week, we're back to just me talk. Uh, so let's start with face... Yes, there is a face-off, not reboot, but sequel that's actually in the works from Adam Wingard and Simon Barrett. Uh, I think I responded to this on Twitter with a big old buck yes. Like, I I really like Wingard and Barrett. Um, yeah, you know, some of Adam's stuff. Like, I didn't, I didn't particularly love the, his Death Note adaptation. Uh, we'll, we'll see how this Godzilla vs. Kong movie goes, but like... Talking about the guys who did Your Next and The Guest. That, those movies are awesome. So I think that's a pretty good hire for Paramount on this one. Um, you know, so I got a little tripped up with the whole reboot versus sequel thing. At first it was announced it was going to be a reboot, which prompted everybody and their mother to come up with, you know, who should be playing the, the face-off guys. I think I threw uh, Denzel and, and John David Washington out there. With a, with a little pitch, but it turns out it is going to be a sequel. So how do you do a sequel to this movie, right? Because Deadline actually said in, in its updated report that, that uh, Fleming believes that the leads will be recast. Now, on the other hand, I, I think I've mentioned this before. There's this new gossip queen on the scene named Dumois. Dumois, I don't know how to actually pronounce the name, um, we'll call it Dusmois or whatever, but, uh, she got an email, you know, she just posts random emails. She doesn't actually check anything out. So you just have to, you can email anything and, and she kind of just run it as, as a rumor. I assume it's a she, by the way. Um, and so she posted an email from someone saying that, you know, clarifying that the face-off project is in fact a reboot, which I, I don't, I don't know if I, if I saw that before, deadline update, or maybe it was just Adam Wingard posted something on Instagram that, that uh, clarified things a bit. But um, this email that this Gossip Queen ran said that Travolta and Cage are in talks to return. So, you know, when Fleming says, I believe that they'll recast the two leads, that's possible. Uh, could Cage and Travolta somehow end up being the leads in this again? It doesn't, I don't know that it makes sense to me, um, but I think anything's possible in, in a world in which you can just remove people's faces uh, and put them back on flawlessly. Um, but, you know, we were, we were talking about what a sequel might look like if that did in fact happen. Because at the end of the first film, Nick Cage's character, Caster Troy, is killed via a harpoon through the chest. So I was talking with Vinny Mancuso about this. He, re he reminded me about the harpoon thing. But I'm like, Vinny, the idea is right there. The guy's lying there on the beach with a harpoon through his chest, but his face is fine. So what if another criminal came along and, and somehow got a hold of the body and said, I want to take Castro Troy's face, put it on me, and live life like I'm freaking criminal badass Castro Troy. That would be interesting if Travolta had to then hunt down another younger criminal who has Nicolas Cage's face. Um, or maybe they just do two completely new characters. I mean, I don't know. What do you do here? Like, Castor Troy has a, has a kid now, or does he not? We could always make up a love child for him. Uh, Travolta has a daughter. I don't know. I don't know where they take this, but I'm excited to find out. And I'm and I and I am glad it's in good hands with Wingard and Barrett. So yeah, face off, man. What a great just what a great 90s action movie. I don't know how there are people out there who don't like face off. It's amazing. Uh okay, we'll go to the Jordan Peele story next. So this was a big one. Would have loved to have run this story last Friday night when I felt pretty confident in it. But it was a Friday of a holiday weekend. There's a lot of politics, you know, going on behind the scenes here. So anyways, Deadline breaks the story Tuesday that Kiki Palmer 
is set to play, well, she's set to star in Jordan Peele's next movie. We don't know the title of his next movie. We don't have any plot deals for his, uh, details for his next movie. I had heard last week that Kiki was going to be playing the film's villain, that there were two male leads and that she was going to play the villain. Now, I didn't know if it was like a love triangle thing or a crazy X movie, you know, like, I don't know. Uh, just I think it was discussing film that came out when this eventually ran. Uh, well, uh, hold on, let me let, let me back up. Okay, so Deadline runs its Kiki Palmer story. I come in a minute or two later with with what I know, which is that you know a month or two ago there was this report from the Illuminati, who we talked about on last week's show, that Jesse Plemons and Daniel Kaluuya had offers or whatever to to star in this movie, um, which it seems like was correct. Uh, now you can make that choice to report on every offer as soon as the offers come in. I mean, sounds like these offers were made a long time ago. It sounds like this thing's been brewing since the fall, but you know, it takes a while sometimes for, for uh, this kind of information to, to make its way around. But anyways, so the Illuminati runs this story about Daniel Kaluuya and Jesse Plemons playing the leads in Peele's new movie. But it turns out that one of them had to pass due to a scheduling conflict. So what I write is Kiki, Kiki Palmer set to star. I hear she's playing the villain, and Daniel Kaluuya from Get Out is in is also in negotiations to star. But Jesse is not going to be along for the ride. He's got some other big scheduling issue. Uh, then I think it was discussing film that said that they had heard that maybe Kiki Palmer and Daniel Kaluuya were going to be playing siblings in the movie, which is interesting. That was a detail that I did not have. But I was curious because like, even though I knew Clemens had this scheduling issue, I didn't know exactly what it was. I knew it was something big because you don't just turn down the lead in a Jordan Peele movie for, for you know, some middling tripe. So a couple days later, Justin Kroll and I believe Boris at THR, they break the news simultaneously that Jesse Clemens is in talks to star in Martin Scorsese's next movie, Killers of the Flower Moon. And get this. This is what I, I had heard this. He's going to be the lead. Leonardo DiCaprio shifted roles. So he was originally set to star, but now he's fixing on a different role, um, uh, maybe a little bit darker in nature. So I get it. I get why Jesse had to say no to Peel. I mean, this is Marty, right? Peel's got a whole lifetime of movies ahead of him. He's going to be making movies for the next two, three decades. Marty Scorsese, as much as it pains me to say it, May only have a couple movies left. I mean, he's getting up there, right? He's getting up there. He's still calling the shots on these huge $200 million movies. And we're in the middle of a global pandemic. And he has asthma. So, like, like I believe me, knock on wood, I don't want this to happen, of course. But I think we all have to acknowledge Marty's getting older. And so he's only going to be able to make a, a few more movies. And so I think it's, it's probably smart that Jesse goes and does this one. He's working with Leo, he's working with De Niro. Like you don't get better than Leo, De Niro and, and Scorsese. Um, it's a huge get for him, you know? I mean, Jesse is normally, he's a great supporting actor, um, but he's rarely like the lead in, in movies. And this is, this is a big one. Like this is like a $200 million budget basically. But you know, when, when you have De Niro and Leo in supporting roles, it's like, You've got some backup. And, and again, with this being an Apple movie, it's not like it's dependent on box office. It's not like it's going to sink the studio if it flops, right? It's Apple. Um, Lily Gladstone also cast, I believe, as the female lead in this film. And you can bet, you know, it, it is about uh, some killings happening, happening on like a Native American reservation, on, Indian, on an Indian reservation. And um, so I think you can expect to see a few more Native American actors uh, I would imagine Scorsese would go with the big names, whether that's Wes Studi. Uh, I think someone like Michael Gray Eyes is coming on really strong right now. Zon McLarnon, I you know I loved from from season uh, from Fargo, from season two. So keep your eye out on Killers of the Flower Moon as far as uh, you know that that kind of casting goes. Um, and as for the Peel movie. I mean, this is coming out next July. Uh, I'm going to try to dig for some plot details, but you know, those are always tough and, and you want to respect it. Like there are some movies where I think, you know, I think comic book movies, they almost know like it's open season to some extent. 
that everything is is fair game when you're reporting on a comic book movie or close to it. I mean, again, this is, all comes down to each individual reporter's discretion, right? But with people like Peel and M. Night Shyamalan, I don't know, you kind of have to respect the effort and, and let it allow it to retain some mystery. Um, I, I suppose J.J. Abrams is, is in that category too. Like you, you kind of got to, the same way a critic has to give a filmmaker its premise or a reporter almost has to give a filmmaker his or her surprise. Um, unless it's just something that you think is going to be included like in, in the marketing materials. And obviously the premise of the movie is, but you know, there's, there are certain things. Anyways, um, we can move on from, from Peel and Clemens. Uh, Zawe Ashton. Cast as the villain in Captain Marvel 2. Not a movie I'm particularly looking forward to. Wasn't a big fan of, of Captain Marvel or Brie Larson or that character. But uh, Nida Costa's Candyman looks really good. She is at the helm of this sequel. And Zawe Ashton impressed me in Velvet Buzzsaw. That was another movie that I didn't really care for, but I definitely watched it sort of keeping an eye on her because I remember that her casting in that film even, which was like a, you know, smaller Netflix movie was like heralded as this arrival of a sort of new star, almost like uh, Jamie Lawson in the, in the Batman coming up. Um, so this is a huge, huge get for, for Zawe Ashton. Um, I guess, listen, if you're a Marvel movie, you don't, you don't need stars necessarily. I, I think that this movie might benefit from a little bit more star power, but I, I also acknowledge that there's a huge like hunger for Marvel stories. So as soon as you know theaters open back up, uh, I, I don't know if they'll if the box office re re like returns will return to where they were, <laughs> but uh, you you can bet that Captain Marvel two is going to pack the houses. Uh, Donald Glover. My old NYU classmate, man, this, this stuff like messes with my head. We, we used to, to, 10, 12 years ago, whatever it was, I guess it's 14 years ago, 15 years ago at this point, we were sitting in the same classes, you know, giving each other notes on stuff. Now he's signed an eight-figure Amazon deal, um, moving away from FX. And there's a whole bunch of stuff that, that is surrounding this. So first of all, it was announced, I think, last last week, or maybe it was Monday, maybe it was Monday night of the holiday weekend or whatever, that uh, Donald Glover and Phoebe Waller-Bridge, who, who were in Solo together, remember she was the voice of that uh, droid, um, they are going to be doing a new Mr. and Mrs. Smith. I'm sure it'll be radically different from the Brad Pitt, Angelina Jolie movie. I kind of love the two of them. I mean, the internet practically broke itself in half. Like everybody was freaking out about this story. Uh, I think that these two are just, you know, two really well-liked and respected artists. And I like that they're doing an, an interracial Mr. and Mrs. Smith. I, I like that these two um, have comedic chops as well. Uh, and, it's a, and it's a series adaptation. So it's, it's definitely going to be different than the movie. And I, for one, am excited about it. I think it sounds pretty cool. Meanwhile, um, so, you know, Donald is about to start shooting Atlanta next month, I believe. And, and I know that that show in its third season is going to Amsterdam. Like right now they're, they're trying to cast a, a transsexual actress. They have an, uh, you know, an open call, so to speak, for transsexual actresses. Um, Donald's announcement also included a TV series called Hive about a Beyonce type figure and apparently he's invited uh, Molly Obama to join the writing staff of that show. Now she has Hollywood experience, maybe not as a writer necessarily, but she did, you know, um, internships. I think that she actually worked, may have worked at the Weinstein company uh, before the shit hit the fan. Um, but I, I know that she's, she's been around a, a little bit. She, she's, not, I haven't, I won't say she's paid her dues, but she's been busy paying her dues the last couple of years. So this didn't completely come out of left field. And also, you know, yeah, you can, you can play the nepotism card or whatever, like, you know, this is Obama's daughter, of course, they're going to hire her or whatever. But uh, I don't know, you look at Donald, who got his start from, from Tina Fey, who just saw something in him and extended in and invited him, you know, to, to write on community or whatever, or what was she, I don't know what it was. I think that's what it was. Um, 
I forget. Anyways, this may just be Donald like seeing something in in the, in the young Obama and, and extending a hand and saying, hey, you know, if you want to contribute a, a treatment, a script, whatever it is for the show, hi, we're down, we're down to check it out. Um, meanwhile, the Obamas were also in the news. There's a lot of like Donald Lover Obama stuff this week. So the Ob- Obamas working with George C. Wolf, the director of uh, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom on Rustin. And then their company, Higher Ground, also picked up Michael Keaton's 9-11 movie, Worth, which, you know, in, in association with Netflix. So that'll debut on the streaming service in September, tied to the 20-year anniversary of 9-11, which is kind of crazy to even think about. Um, I missed Worth last, was that it? I think it was at Sundance last year. Uh, I heard it was good. I heard, you know, it's it's a tough movie. It's it's about the guy who sort of had to assess what everyone's lives were worth in 9-11 um, as they did victims comp- compensation and stuff. But uh, I do want to catch that. I mean, I heard, I heard Michael Keaton was really, really good in that. <clears throat> and I like where the Obamas are sort of, you know, using their influence. You know, like when they signed that big Netflix deal, they announced a few a few projects here and there. And I know that they're developing uh, Exit West with, with Riz Ahmed, but uh, I don't know. It's nice to see them throwing their weight around behind projects like Worth, which may have just been left behind, you know? I mean, this thing's been searching for a distributor for a year. I don't know if it would have found anybody without their influence. Um, what else, what else, what else? There's so much. All right. We, I mean, we had the WGA nominations. We kind of did a deep dive on that for FYC this week with, uh, with Manson Perry. That's going to go up on Friday. So stay tuned for a new FYC tomorrow that delves into our screenplay predictions and recaps the WGA nominations, which are always weird because of how many projects are ineligible, right? We're written outside of guild jurisdiction. Um, you know, uh, Variety's Clayton Davis had an interesting article this week about Barb and Star. Because so, so I guess it's time to talk about Barb and Star. I want to review it, and then and then I guess we'll talk about the award situation with it because it's a weird one. So, uh, all right, what was it? It was, was it Friday night, Saturday night. I don't know what the hell it was, but I. I finally decided to pony up and and pay twenty bucks to watch Barb and Star. I had a bad. A feeling about it. I mean, I wanted to to laugh, but I also didn't want to pay twenty bucks to see this thing. Well, you know, whatever. Okay, sure. I've saved plenty of money at, at, at the movies over the last year. Um, I was disappointed, just be, based on like the word of mouth from everybody online, because they were comparing this to like MacGruber and Popstar, never, never stop, never stopping. Uh, I cannot put it on that level. I really like both MacGruber and Popstar. Barb and Star was just a little too slight and not, it just wasn't funny enough. I mean, it played like an extended SNL sketch. Again, at 107 minutes, this is too long. Like anyone with a brain, how are there like professional editors out there in the movie world when you see a title that says Barb and Star go to Vista Del Mar, starring Kristen Wiig, that's nine. That's a hundred and seven minute movie. Anyone with a brand would say this movie has to be under a hundred minutes. And yeah, you, you know, Jeff, why do you? It's only seven minutes. Who cares? Like, it's just the credits. Like this movie would would really benefit from from some trims. And I'm talking like even if the, like look at. Bill and Ted, which is the movie I compared this to when when I wrote about Barb and Star, because that was another $20 rental that was an absolute piece of shit. (laughs) This wasn't a piece of shit, Barb and Star, but it was just like, yeah, it was an SNL sketch that overstayed its welcome. Um, Kristen Wiig, I I liked Barb and Star. I liked the two of them and their shtick, even though it does get old. But the villain, Kristen Wiig, I didn't know that she was playing the villain in this. And I, I did not like what she did. It was just like over the top. It, it was like, uh, you know, I tweeted about it. Like, you know, Austin Powers works because there's a good foil for Austin Powers. There's Dr. Evil. Ruth Gordon, Gordon, whatever. I don't even know what the hell her name was. It was stupid. It was just like, no, no, 
Mm-mm, Kristen Wiig. She needs to stop playing villains. Uh, Jamie Dorden, I liked in this. You know, he 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 was totally game, and I love Edgar's song or whatever that that he sings on the beach to, to a talking grab on a tire. Uh, like that was funny, and I think that the movie needed more of those moments, those sort of flights of fancy. It almost could have been even weirder and crazier. Uh, you know, like the Damon Wayans Jr. stuff, like uh, Darley Bunkle. Like, it was just like the same joke over and over and over again. So it was a little one note in, in that regard. So I didn't love the movie. I didn't really understand why everyone on, on film Twitter was freaking out about it. Like, this is the next great comedy masterpiece. Stop what you're doing right now and watch Barb and Star. Like, are these people so starved for laughs over the last few months that like we're, we're hailing this as the next great comedy masterpiece where we're anointing this. Um, okay. So I didn't love it. It was not worth 20 bucks. Having said that, Clayton Davis writes this article about how Barb and Star is not eligible for the Oscar or for the Golden Globes this year, because again, I don't understand. Golden Globes, you're, you, you can come out by February 28th and you're eligible, but you had to screen for the committee by November 30th, that's three months ago. So this movie was originally supposed to open this summer. Well, not originally, it was supposed to open last year, but then they moved it to summer 2021. And then they were just like, you know what? There could be blockbusters out there and this movie could get swallowed up. We see an opportunity on Valentine's Day to market this as about a, a film about female friendship. Let's put it out on Valentine's Day. Cool. But the movie wasn't ready just, you know, it wasn't, by the time that decision was made, November 30th, whatever the deadline was, passed. Same with the SAG Awards. Uh, November 20th, I think, was their deadline. I don't understand these super early deadlines, by the way, if we're extending the, the season to the end of February. It doesn't make sense to me. Um, so, and, and then because it's February, right? It comes out in February. Next year's Golden Globe eligibility period, I believe, starts March 1st. So it's it caught in like this no man's land where it can't compete for this year's and it can't compete for next year's. And SpongeBob, the new SpongeBob movie, I guess is in the same boat uh, because that was submitted for this year's stuff. But now that it's not coming out until March 5th to coincide with the launch of Paramount Plus, it, it didn't make the eligibility period for this year. So... It's just weird stuff afoot. And that's what happens when you fuck with the awards calendar. Um, and so even though I didn't love Barb and Star, I will absolutely defend its right to compete for a Golden Globe. It doesn't make sense that there are movies caught in this awards purgatory, okay? You can bet your ass that the, the, the HFPA, that SAG, all these places are going to revisit the eligibility period, revisit the rules, just to make sure that no film gets left out because they shouldn't have to, you know, being at the mercy of the business whims and demands of, of studios in the middle of a pandemic. Like that's just not fair. And Barb and Star could have been a Golden Globes player, even again, even though I didn't love it, I could see Kristen Wiig getting nominated or the song being nominated or, you know, whatever the hell it is. Um, so it's really just about fairness and forget my own personal preferences. I don't think it's fair what has happened to, to Barb and Star as far as its eligibility goes. Um, as for you guys, you know, you, you, may get, you may get more out of the movie than I did. Uh, if I were you, I'd probably just wait three, four weeks or whatever for it to be available on VOD at a more reasonable price. I don't know that I understand this pricing. I think that studios have to be more flexible. I mean, I guess if, if, if you look at the, the landscape and see how comedy starved it was, maybe it was smart for Lionsgate to, to put a $20 sticker tag on, on Barb and Star, right? Hoping that people are going to, you know, shell out and watch it with the, with the other people in their family. I mean, I watched it alone. If, I, if my brothers had been around or if I wasn't quarantining at the moment, maybe I would have invited them over and made a night out of this like we did Bill and Ted, even though they were ready to kill me after that because they hated it so much. Um, but like, I don't know. Does it need to be 1999? Is that always it? Like breaking news in Yuba County, which I'll talk about later in the show, that was a 1499 price tag. 
But even so, I, I know that these movies were aimed, aiming for theatrical releases. Like, Breaking News in Yuba County is something that should have been made available to rent for $9.99. Uh, and really maybe even six or seven ninety nine, six ninety nine, seven ninety nine. But I'm you know, nine ninety nine would have done it. $14.99, I'm not gonna rent or buy this movie for that. Like the movie's like 13% fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. Like if you're gonna charge people for it for, for something like that, you gotta have a good movie. Um, that's what really pissed me off about the Bill and Ted situation, is that it just felt like a tossed off hunk of shit, but because it's part of, you know, this franchise has Keanu Reeves. You know, they, they figured people would check it out. And uh, so, yeah, 20 bucks. Ridiculous. Um, what else is on the list? You know, I wanted to talk about the Delroy Lindo stuff because, uh, you know, he keeps getting snubbed, right? And I think he's undeniably good in the movie. Like, maybe it's the fact that he's more or less a character actor and this is kind of like a leading role and maybe the culmination of his career. Is that why people are really, you know, pulling for him or in his corner? Or is it just forget everything Delroy Lindo's ever done and just based on this performance, the guy's excellent and he deserves it. But someone put this theory forward and, and the more I've thought about it, the more it kind of makes sense to me is the reason that Delroy Lindo keeps getting snubbed is the reason because he's playing a MAGA character in, in to five bloods. He's playing uh, a bleeding heart Trump guy who wears the red hat and, and, you know, maybe doesn't have hate in his heart, but certainly has some, some prejudice, some, some bias. Right. I, I do wonder if that is the reason he's not getting nominated, which is fucked up by the way. Like we can, we can give an Oscar to, to Anthony Hopkins in Silence of the Lambs who kills cops. And we, and we can give an Oscar to, uh, you know, Anton Chigurh in No Country for Old Men, but someone who, who spouts some MAGA shit, like we can't even talk about them for, for an Oscar. They're not even contention. That's, uh, I mean, you know, I, I'm no MAGA bro, that's for sure. I mean, but I, yeah, like, are, are we, I just want to be clear, is the industry judging the performance or are they judging the character? Because it's fucked up to be judging the character. That character makes sense within the context of the five bloods. And we need those types of characters, if only to remind us of, you know, there's people on the, on the opposite, opposite ends of the spectrum. Um, so I don't know. I, I would like to see an outlet to really kind of talk to voters about that theory. Not that anybody would necessarily open up, but uh, it, it is certainly interesting that here's the, like the biggest snub of the season is a guy who wears a, a red Trump hat. Um, speaking of odd Trumpers, Gina Carano, we talked about her last week. And, and by the way, I saw the show with Roca got a lot of views on YouTube, or at least at least a lot of views for the Snyder Cut. Uh, I, you know, I, I guess this is a real hot button issue. Um, I haven't kept up on The Mandalorian. I don't even think I've seen Gina Carano on the show. So I don't really have any thoughts as far as The Mandalorian is concerned. Um, but anyway, so Gina Carano, she basically got extended an invitation by the Daily Wire. They were like, you know, we'll make your next movie, whatever it is. Uh, you know, you can, you can star in it, produce it, whatever the fuck she does. I don't, and she, she can't even act, right? Uh, so the Daily Wire, again, I don't know this guy, Ben Shapiro, really. I know he's the kind of guy I'm not supposed to like. Um, this is an, it's an interesting business model to go after the canceled and say, hey, there's a space for you here. Uh, like I said a couple shows ago, Daily Wire gave Run, Hide, Fight a home. And even though I could not bring myself to, you know, subscribe to the Daily Wire to watch this movie, uh, I certainly didn't want to be getting emails from them. I, I found a way to see it and I really liked it. So it's like the Daily Wire, even though I may not like what they stand for editorially, I do like that they provided a home for this movie that may have not otherwise been seen just because of some of its 
politics, which really aren't all that disturbing. I don't really get why why Renheit Fight couldn't find a, a, a distributor other than like it's teen violence. Like, I mean, when you're shooting kids, I guess that's always a hot button issue. But, you know, as far as it's like conservative politics or anything, like I didn't think it was like that outrageous, uh, the, the stuff in the movie, like, so anyway, it's going to be interesting to see what happens with Gina Carano because she's not really regarded as someone who can act, frankly. Uh, you know, I mean, she even had to have like her lines dubbed in Haywire, right? That's this, this Soderbergh movie. But she's also like a brute force. She's a former, you know, fighter. She can kick some ass on screen. I wonder if she just becomes, you know, a version of like Bruce Willis who's just making these direct-to-video movies. Like, could that be her, you know, making movies aimed at, at you know, conservatives and Republicans? And, and, and guys, these people go to the movies too. It's just like Michael Jordan said back in the 80s, like Republicans buy shoes too. We can't just pretend that they're not, that we don't live in the same country as these people or they're not around us when we go to the grocery store or whatever. Like, um, so while I certainly don't condone some of the things that Gina Carano said or tweeted, uh, you know, if, if she considers herself an artist, I, I suppose she has the right to make art. And if Daily Wire wants to foot the bill for that, go for it. You know, uh, it's probably not something that I will want to check out. But if I do, you know, if I do, I'm going to find a way to see it without giving money to that platform, which I can't endorse. Uh, all right. We can move along. Daisy Ridley signing on this morning to start in The Marsh King's Daughters, a project I've heard about for a while now. Uh, I think it's been in the works for several years. Um, and it's basically just about like a guy who kept his wife and daughter like living in the woods in really weird conditions. And, you know, years later, the, the, the girl is now a, a grown adult. Her father is in prison. She's struggling to sort of cope with you know what happened to her when she was younger, and then he uh, dad escapes from prison, and she has to sort of uh, confront her fears, face her demons, so to speak. It sounds like an interesting project for Daisy Ridley, who's been doing you know Star Wars and uh, Murder on the Orient Express and fucking Chaos Walking that comes out in a couple weeks. You know, big kind of blockbuster movie. So it it'll be nice to see her in a, in a smaller indie movie. Uh, Beth Bear is the star of Two Bro Girls. She sold a script that, this week that she co-wrote titled Wine and Crime, which is like about, I don't know, like a bunch of true crime fans who have a little, you know, wine and cheese night and, and talk about the latest documentaries or cases they're, they're investigating as web sleuths. And then they get wrapped up in a, in a real murder mystery. I mean, it, I feel like I've heard this premise or, or, you know, variations on it before, but whatever, you know, you can never have too many uh, true crime pro related projects, apparently. Uh, Gremlin, Secrets of the Mogwai. We got Matthew Reese, B.D. Wong, Ming-Na Wen, a whole bunch of people. I like this. I like the premise of this, just the whole setup. And, and I like that they gave like details about it. So it's a, basically an origin story about Mr. Wing, right? The old shopkeeper, Zach uh, Gilligan or whatever, gets his, uh, you know, gets Gizmo from in the original movie. So he's going to be, it's like, it's, that means it must be like a period piece of some kind, I would imagine. And basically this 10, 12 year old, uh, you know, his, I think it's his grandfather who, who like teaches him about the Mogwai. Uh, and nobody really believes the grandfather's stories, but it turns out that they're real. Um, Ming-Na Wen, B.D. Wong are going to be playing the parents of this boy and Matthew Reese is going to be voicing the, the villain because this is an animated show coming to HBO Max. I really like the Gremlins. I love the original. I really like the sequel. Like Gremlins 2 should be in the conversation for, for great movie sequels. Uh, that's probably how I even fell in love with the franchise was Gremlins 2. You know, is this a craven attempt to just continue the franchise? Sure. But you know what? At least it's a fucking franchise worth continuing. And the fact that it's animated, uh, you know, that, that could get kids excited about Gremlins again. And who knows? Maybe we get another sequel or a, or a reboot of some kind. I know they've been working on it for years up at Warner Brothers and just have not been able to crack the code. 
Um, elsewhere, Annapurna lands on the count of three for two million bucks. That's Gerard Carmichael's directorial debut that was at Sundance. Good movie. I liked it. It won the Screenwriting Award. While STX just picked up Chris Pine's Violence of Action. Uh, yeah. Just, just some little acquisition news. Uh, there's a Three Musketeers movie, actually a two-parter in the works with like Vincent Cassell and Ava Green. I mean, I don't care about the Three Musketeers. I, I didn't care about them 20 years ago when I was a little boy. You know, these are the kinds of old stories that, yeah, they're timeless and everything, but no, this is, this is like a movie strictly made for the European market. If you really wanted to like do something interesting with the Three Musketeers, make them women. Make them all black or all Asian, or just do something besides just, just um, do some variation on the Three Musketeers, the way that Sundance movie, R hashtag J, or however the fuck I'm supposed to pronounce it, was like an interesting modern take on Romeo and Juliet. I'd like to see that uh, with Three Musketeers. I, I wasn't necessarily getting that vibe from, from this one. Uh, yeah. I... I I don't know. I'd like to see like a, a cool, hip, exciting young filmmaker tackle Three Musketeers with, a, with an interesting twist, but just another kind of boring Euro version doesn't do anything for me. Uh, Dexter continues to cast up. That's going to start filming soon. Jamie Chung's playing a true crime podcaster. Sure. Okay. Sounds good. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to miss Deb on Dexter, even though she was annoying as fuck. There was just something I, I kind of loved about Deb. Um... Apple and Skydance, they, they finally made it official, uh, inking a big overall deal for film and television. You know, Apple had already acquired the Skydance projects, Luck and Spellbound. Now Skydance is doing a TV series for them, The Search uh, for Wandla. Uh, so what did like Paramount get for its trouble from this Skydance stuff? Like anything? Did anything happen here? I, I, it's just, was it the Lasseter of it all that people just didn't, want to work with him. I mean, I, I can't blame them, quite frankly. Uh, both of these projects, though, Spellbound, Luck, they have interesting log lines. You know, I, I like the premise of each one. One set in, like, the world of good and bad luck, which sounds like a very Pixar premise. Um, the other ones, you know, like uh, two magical kingdoms and breaking the spell, so to speak, who gives uh, whatever. But, uh... I don't know. Apple. Everybody's trying to get into the animation space these days, whether it's Apple, whether it's Netflix, everybody wants to tackle to, to, you know, come at the King to come at Disney. Um, you know, I think if they can just see the growth that Disney plus has and they realize like we need to do a better job, but you know, going after kids. I mean, Netflix has Coco melon and, and all this shit. Like I can't imagine that they're hard up for, for younger viewers, but uh, this is probably a smart move by, by Apple to really make a big commitment to, to that space. Uh, Paramount developing The King and I. Sure. Uh, yeah, I know that's like a big musical. I probably won't see this movie. And then Yumanzu yeah, from Free Guys scribe Matt Lieberman. That's a high concept family adventure movie described as somewhere between uh, Close Encounters and Jurassic Park. I wonder if that's like Come to the Alien Zoo, U Man Zoo, right? So it's got maybe maybe it's Human Zoo, something like that. Have aliens put humans in a, in a zoo? That's kind of interesting, actually. I, I just heard, I just sounded out that U Man Zoo and was like, oh, is that what it's about? Um, all right, we've got like twenty minutes left, and I've got some trailers and some reviews to discuss. So let's talk about the trailers first. I'm gonna work our way up. Uh, there was a trailer for Violation this week, which was a really good Sundance movie. It's a rape revenge movie. It's totally fucked up um, and it's gonna be on Shudder. So if you have Shudder, make sure to add Violation to your screening queue. Really, really respect what Madeline Sims Fewer did here. She's the star, she's the co-writer, co-director, producer, etc. cetera. Um, we got a couple of like bio series or bio pick documentary thing uh, trailers. One for John Wayne Gacy, Devil in Disguise. I read a Gacy book, I think it was, if it wasn't last year, then it was 2019. It was called Killer Clown. 
And like Gacy is fucking like they're like all these guys are disturbing as hell. But like, you know, Gacy was sort of a pillar of the community, right? He dressed up as a clown, entertained children. Uh, I mean, it's, it's just it's very messed up what he he had like a torture board that he would, you know, chain people to and torture them and then basically throw them in, in his crawl space or under his house. And then they had to, you know, their bags of lime dissolving bodies. And it was like just the stench. It's a, it's a crazy story. And, and Gacy, there was an indie movie back in the day, maybe 15 years ago, I think with Mark Holton, who I remember as Ozzy from Leprechaun, if I'm not mistaken. I don't know, my, my voice could go up that high. Uh, he did a good job as Gacy, um, and, and I'd like to see somebody like a John Carroll Lynch maybe one day play Gacy, even though he already played the Zodiac. Uh, but I, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing if, if that book, Killer Clown, missed anything. I, I'm, I'm down to check out this Gacy docuseries, although it is on Peacock. Um, I don't know. I guess whenever something's on Peacock now, I'm just like, it is on Peacock now. Is that, is, could Peacock, is Peacock going to be the next Quibi? Or, because they, they do have some interesting programming. Dr. Death, I'm looking forward to. I guess we'll see. Uh, Notorious B.I.G. Biggie, I got a story to tell. That's going to be a Netflix documentary film. I kind of loved the footage that I saw in this trailer, the, the behind the scenes stuff. Uh, just about you know Biggie growing up. I mean, this guy died. He died so young, and and it was he he was he's one of the greats. Like I know I'm some white Jewish guy from the suburbs of Boston, but like we used to bump Biggie music all the time in summer camp. Uh, yeah, I, if he's got a story to tell, I want to I want to fucking hear it. And then the big trailer this week, which bound this morning, and I gotta say I loved it, was Mortal Kombat. Who would have thought, if you had asked me what I thought about a Mortal Kombat movie with almost no stars I can name, I would have been like, oh, this is going to be another hunk of shit. This movie, the, the trailer, it was, a, it was a, a red band trailer, restricted, and this is a fucking hard R movie. I love it. Uh, they had, I mean, they had Sub-Zero, like, stabbing a guy, his blood comes out of him, and then Sub-Zero freezes the blood into an icicle and stabs the guy with his own blood icicle again. What? There were people ripping out hearts. Uh, it, it looked fucking wild. So the fact that it doesn't have any stars, it's like, okay, I didn't know anybody in the raid either. This looks awesome. Uh, I really hope that this is a big screen thing, although I have a feeling it's more, you know, it's going to be, you know, simultaneously on HBO Max. But I'm going to watch this one with my brothers for sure because we grew up playing Mortal Kombat. Uh, and it looks like they got the characters right. I don't know. I got a good feeling about this Mortal Kombat movie, folks. And now let's talk about some reviews because I've got a lot to discuss. We already hit on Barb and Star. Uh, oh, I got some mailbag questions too. I'll try to keep some, some time left for those. So Your Honor ended this week. Uh, if you haven't seen Your Honor, stop listening because you should watch it. It was, it was very watchable. If you do watch Your Honor but haven't seen the finale, stop, stop listening for a couple minutes. Um, Your Honor, frustrating show. I gave it a B minus. You know, I think it was based on like the first what, three episodes maybe. I forget how many they gave me originally. Maybe it was the first four. And I, and I liked what I saw, but I also felt like it was just the kitchen sink. Like it was, we're going to take an element from this show and an element from this show and an element from this show and put it all together in this stew. And it sometimes felt like a little much. Uh, the premise itself is great. You know, a hit and run and it's the son of a gangster and, and the son of a judge, like, um, but it just got a little too convoluted. Now, the last couple episodes I thought were really good, like episodes, you know, six, seven, eight, nine, like it really did build into something. And at that point, I was like, oh man, did I misjudge the show? Like, this thing's fucking ripping. Should it have been more of like a B plus than a B minus? And then the finale rolled around and I just felt tossed off. I did not like the ending. Um, and again, if you haven't seen it, spoiler alert right now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about it. But at the end, Brian Cranston's kid gets like accidentally shot through the neck. 
So you had to know that he wasn't going to be let off easy. Uh, there's, you know, there's another thing that we're talking about where, you know, you just you can't let these characters off easy and they don't get let off easy. Um, but the, the, the problem with the ending to me was like, it was too abrupt. So once you find out that this kid catches a stray bullet, so to speak, uh, that's it. And Cranston's great in the episode, but it was like, okay, this judge has done so much. He, you know, he basically like so many people had to die for it to even get to this point. He's, you know, covered things up in the law. Like what's going to happen to this judge? He's he's the main character. It's not the boy. So any so I just didn't like that there wasn't much resolution there. Like yeah, he gets punished because his son gets killed, but you know, does he go return to the bench? Like what happens to the romantic relationship? What ha- you know, like I, I would have liked a, some type of coda or epilogue, and I, and I felt cheated a little bit by the finale. So in the end, I think I'd have to stick by my B minus review for for the Your Honor finale. It was a very watchable show. I'm glad I watched it. I, I think dad liked it. It's a dad show. You know, when I saw uh, a big interview with the showrunner on Deadline and I was, you know, researching what to talk about, um, I wasn't surprised it was Fleming that, that, that did the Your Honor finale thing. Because, like, this is, like, me and Fleming lined up on, in terms of TV taste, I think. He's like a Ray Donovan guy. He likes these dad shows, and so do I. <laughs> Um, this is definitely a dad show. Uh, I, I wish it was a little bit better. I don't think it was as good as like defending Jacob. Um, but, you know, d- d- despite the disappointing ending, it, it, it was it was worth the, the time investment. I'm glad I checked it out. I finished, uh, now these next two shows are on HBO, HBO Max. I'd already talked about the investigation a couple of weeks ago. And, and that there are a couple episodes into that now. So if you haven't started watching the investigation, fucking get on it. We're going to talk about Bear Town and The Head now. The Head was a recommendation that came to me from Justin Kroll. And I watched it in, I think it was over two days. Uh, it moved pretty quickly. It's six episodes. And it's basically um, set at a research facility on like the South Pole. And, you know, let's say there's 300 people there during the summer months. But, you know, come April 29th, the sun disappears for six months. Uh, so there's six months of, of darkness and six months of light. And when it's dark there, there's only 10 people at, at the station. Everybody else leaves. So you got 10 people in this station. And then the summer team comes back six months later and they find most of the, the team dead, the winter team. So it's sort of this whodunit, you know, 10 little Indians and then there were none type of thing where one by one we see, you know, these, these crew members uh, get picked off. Um, it was good. It wasn't top-notch great, I don't think, but I liked the ending a lot. And I don't want to say too much about it or compare it to any one movie because I think it would sort of give away the game that they're playing here. Um, but when I went back and sort of replayed everything in my head, the explanation added up. So I think that this is a, a mystery worth checking out. It is in mostly in English, although there's a little bit of, I don't know, I think it's Swedish, Spanish. I don't know. I think it's Swedish, but, uh, you know, there, there, are some, there are some occasional subtitled exchanges, but for the most part in English, and you can always, you know, watch it dubbed or whatever, uh, that, that the, the other parts. I don't know. Maybe you can't, but the head worth checking out. What was better than the head, though, was Beartown. Beartown is excellent. Like, I fucking loved it. Uh, this one is the one with the former NHL coach comes, you know, back to his hometown in Sweden to coach the, let's call it the varsity hockey team or whatever. Uh, and it turns out the varsity hockey team is not very good. It's all about the junior varsity team or whatever. I mean, that's not really how it works in Sweden. Um, but <laughs> uh, so he, he decides to take on this youth hockey team. And he has one good player or one like great player, Kevin, who's really, you know, like leading the team and like the whole town is invested in this team. If there's anything that doesn't really work, it's, it's why, you know, why does the town's entire like fortunes reside on the shoulders of this youth team. But anyways, 
uh, you know, the youth team needs to get to the finals or win the finals in order to keep the town arena open. So then it comes out that the best player may or may not have sexually assaulted the coach's daughter. So it's like, okay, well, I mean, it's not so much about the struggle of like, do I play this guy? Do you know, which one do I believe? Well, I need my best player to win the game. If we don't have him, like the town could, could, you know, suffer some horrible financial uh, misfortune. The arena could close, blah, 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 blah. The performances in this were just so authentic and, and natural. I love the two teenagers at the center of this uh, and, and the coach was fantastic. Like just, yeah. Can't say enough about Bear Town. Uh, five episodes, a very quick investment in, in, in time, um, and was just much more satisfying than something like Your Honor. Um, I watched, speaking of sort of like, you know, these, this foreign kick, I guess I've been on. There are two thrillers that are both, you know, very cold. I've seen a lot of like Bear Town in the Head and Red Dot and Below Zero. There, there's some type of trend happening here because it's just snow wall-to-wall. Red Dot is about a couple who basically go to see the Northern Lights and then all of a sudden a red dot appears uh, in their tent and, and basically they're being hunted. And is it like, is it the two guys whose car they scratched up earlier in the film? Is there somebody else? Uh, I, liked, I liked this one too. I thought it was, you know, it, it moves, it just moves quick. I mean, it's not anything you haven't seen before. You know, revenge is just such a big thing. In this movie, in Below Zero, Below Zero is like Con Air, but on a bus. It's, you know, a, a bunch of prisoners are being transported, you know, as part of a transfer. And then, the, you know, somebody makes sure that the bus stops and then starts picking off the, the people one by one because he wants someone inside. Uh, you know, at first you think that the person on the outside is trying to save one of the prisoners on the inside, but no, they're, they're actually trying to get to them. Uh, that one, you know, I watched both of these movies dubbed actually, which is not ideal. I don't like watching dubbed uh, films, but I also, it's not like, I don't know why Netflix starts them out dubbed. Like I, what I want is that they should just play the movie right with the subtitles and then if i want to turn the subtitles off and, and use the dub then that's what i should do i don't like that the like original file is the dubbed file because sometimes i don't even know what fucking language i should be turning it you know putting it on uh so those are both satisfying very cold movies like if you're in the snow you may not want to watch them because you're going to feel even colder uh okay here come the three big movies now Oh, excuse me. I have not been sleeping a lot. I've been going to bed at like four in the morning the last few nights. Last night I watched Breaking News in Yuba County. So this was one that they were nice enough to hook me up with a screening link for because I didn't really want to spend 15 bucks to see it. I don't think it's worth 15 bucks, but it's, it may be worth, you know, $6.99 rental in, in a couple of weeks because I think this is available for rental in, in early March. Uh, so this is like Allison Janney and... Uh, her husband disappears, we'll say. And so she starts to milk the moment, you know, for, for the press. And, you know, she has neighbors coming over. Oh, is there anything I can do here? I made you a, you know, a, a pie, whatever the hell it is. And it's like this crime caper flick from, from Tate Taylor. It has a great cast. Like, I really like the ensemble here. And listen, even though it's, it's no one's necessarily finest hour, like I liked the, the supporting turns from, from Wanda Sykes, uh, from Aquafina. Like it, it has a fun cast. Now it has like a 13% on Rotten Tomatoes or something like that. Um, it's, it's, not a, it's not getting great, great reviews. And I understand that. I, I guess this is something of a guilty pleasure for me. Uh, you know, it's a movie that you watch while you're doing laundry. I guess the interesting thing about this movie is the fact that it was produced by the blacklist. It may even be the first film produced by, by the blacklist, which is like this arbiter of taste, right? The blacklist will never miss an opportunity to tell you we had, you know, Slumdog Millionaire and Juno on the blacklist. And we had, you know, 400 movies uh, on our list have earned nominations and 17 have gone on to win best picture. I mean, they just have all the stats, right? For all their successes, Again, I liked Breaking News in Yuba County, but this is like, 
it's I think it illustrates it illustrates the danger of the blacklist being anything more than the blacklist, you know. Like, be, I don't know if you're gonna sort of say you're the, this great arbiter of, of taste, right, and trust our judgment, and then the movie like Breaking News in Yuba County comes out, and the critics kind of hate it. I don't know. It's just like you're you're kind of damaging your own brand there. So I don't know if it was like the blacklist was too ambitious by getting into the, the pr producing game, or if this just is not the best example of it. I mean, most of the movies on the blacklist have producers attached. Um, this one, this movie was also produced by Jake Gyllenhaal. I don't know. It was just something that stood out to me. Like when I was looking at the credits and everything, like how did this get made type of thing? Again, I, I think it's worth checking out. Um, I think Tate Taylor makes watchable movies, like even if they're not great, like, you know, Ava or Ava with the Jessica Chastain thing on Netflix or Ma with Octavia Spencer, you know, neither great movies, but watchable. Uh, and it's just very interesting how Tate Taylor has kind of reinvented himself since The Help. Because I thought him and like Ted Melfi would have kind of similar careers, if you will. Uh, the other two big movies um, this week, Willie's Wonderland. This was one that also cost $20 that I called in a favor on, like, like Run, Hide, Fight, where I was like, listen, I really want to see this movie. It's Nick Cage fucking fighting Chuck E. Cheese animatronic characters, but there's no way I'm paying $20 to see it. And thank God I got the hookup because it was horrible. It was so bad. Who are the people who could possibly say Willie's Wonderland was fun? First of all, Nick Cage doesn't talk in the movie. Didn't know that at all. I wonder if they save money by being like, you know what, Nick? We'd, we'd like this movie was tailor made for you, but your fee is two million. We'll give you one million, and you don't have to learn any lines. Just show up. Like, there, I just feel like there has to be a reason. That couldn't have been a creative choice because so much of what makes Nick Cage great is his voice. You know when he's yelling and screaming so like when you take that away from him it's like removing one of the biggest tools in his toolbox um i thought the movie looked cheap uh i thought the direction was shoddy sorry kevin lewis um yeah this movie was garbage it was pretty bad there weren't even really like exciting kills it was just like if you threw a puppet at nicholas cage and then watched him like wrestle with it in like super blurry oh it was it was bad guys um although i guess i guess i think that the the premise got like i gave it one star the premise and nicholas cage gets it half a star and i did like a, a, a moment towards the end uh which got it the other half star but one was as high as i could go and finally uh, i care a lot is the new movie opening on netflix tonight it is from jay blakes and it stars rosamund pike this is a great premise for a movie about like an evil conservator who basically sticks old people in nursing homes and then takes their money and takes their homes. And, uh, and she like controls their lives. She has power of attorney, but she fucks with the, the wrong lady played by Diane Weiss, who is great. We should be seeing more of Diane Weiss in everything. I thought she was easily the best part of Let Them All Talk. I don't know how we were talking about Meryl Streep and, and Candace Bergen. I mean, I like Candace Bergen in the movie, but Diane Weiss was great in, in Let Them All Talk. Uh, yeah, she's just, she reminds me of my own grandmother, I guess. But uh, this movie had some tonal issues. I, I think it was kind of all over the place with, with, in terms of its tone. But Rosamond is, she, she is delicious. She is wicked in this movie. I really like Chris Messina as well as Diane Weiss. I, you know, he's, he wasn't in it enough. He was great. Peter Dinklage is good. This is like, it, they're calling it a, a pitch black comedy. I, I guess you could call it a, a comedic thriller of sorts. I liked it. I didn't love it like I thought that I would, the way that like Scott Mance was, was type, talking about it and hyping it up, but uh, definitely worth a look on Netflix. I just don't think it's going to be crashing the awards party or anything like that. All right, I did get uh, some, some mailbags here. Hold on, I'm opening them right now. I know we got one from Sam Street. So one second. Sam Streak wrote in, mailbag question. Hi, Jeff, I hope you're well. My question for you this week is, are you a fan of physical media? And if so, what are some of, what are some of your prized possessions? 
so I am a fan of physical media when it comes to stuff that I know is going to be hard to find. You know, I don't need to buy fucking The Matrix 4 or Jurassic World 3 because those movies are always going to be available on streaming, on DVD or whatever. But like, you know, a Serbian film, if you want to talk about prized possessions, yeah, I have a, a, a DVD copy of a Serbian film. Why? Because that is not a movie I'm going to be able to just pop on Netflix anytime I want to watch it. So I would say more sort of hardcore movies, uh, more fucked up movies, you know, I'm trying to think of what other stuff. I mean, it's like when I was uh, maybe a later teenager, the only albums that I bought, I think, were Modest Mouse albums and Radiohead albums and maybe Metallica. Those were like the three bands that are like, all right, I want to own your shit physically on CD, but everything else can just be downloaded onto my iPod. So I think it's like that. There are, there are movies like when Heat put out a new like 4K transfer, I'm like, listen, I watch Heat once or twice a year. Might as well, like rather than having to keep renting it for $3.99 on iTunes, might as well just get a sick, you know, physical copy. Um, so I think it just depends on, on the movie and, uh, but, but yeah, on, on the whole, I would say I'm, I'm fairly digitally minded. I mean, it's just, listen, I don't have a big house either. You know, I, I mean, I'm living in a big house now, but none of, <laughs> besides what you see behind me, none of my possessions are here. So, you know, in my apartment, I had just way too many DVDs and stuff. I, I when I moved in, um, with, uh, with Steffi, last year uh, when I was living in Santa Monica with her, I basically limited myself to a hundred physical discs with, with the backs. Uh, the rest went into binders. So yeah, I, I still had all these physical discs because I'm a hoarder and I never throw anything out. Um, but yeah, there were only a hundred like DVD covers uh, left that I was allowed to like display or anything like that. Do I regret it at all? Not necessarily throwing everything out. I think binders are, are fine for most of those movies. But yeah, I, I basically made my collection look that much better because I just picked the top 100 titles from it. Uh, all right, Joanna Linaverta, I know, uh, wrote. So here is the question. It is old. I know we're wrapping up soon. One second, Thad. Joanna Linaverta writes... Since you know the ins and outs of Hollywood way better than me, how much does a casting director usually do? You hear stories of a writer writing a character with a certain actor in mind. So can the casting director override that choice or are they just another voice in the room, uh, you know, with the auditions and whatnot? Um, and check out uh, Johanna's letterbox reviews as well. So what I would say about that is it depends on the casting director. It depends on the filmmaker. It depends on the project. I think that a lot of directors, particularly the high powered ones normally have people in mind and they can, you know, they also have their own relationships where they can just call up so-and-so and, and say, Hey, you know, I, I don't need to bring you in to, to read for it. You know, I know what you can do. I don't need to go through your agent uh, on this. Like, you know, we'll hammer out the deal points later. I just want a verbal agreement. You're, you know, keep your spring free. Cause I want you in this. And, 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 uh, and that's all, you know, a lot of this stuff works. But then again, if you're a first time filmmaker, uh, yeah, you may not just be able to get your first choices. And so you may need a casting director to walk, to help you find, you know, suitable leads. I would say for the most part, it's like a mix. Um, I think that casting directors are, are incredibly valuable. I, I do think that there should be an Oscar for casting. The question is who, who does the Oscar go to? Does it go to the casting director? if everyone's really just thinking about the leads that the director put in the movie, you know? I think the casting director is more essential when it comes to the smaller roles, you know? And it's like, oh, I just need one guy to come in and knock this scene out of the park. I need one uh, great uh, character actress to play a waitress and, and deliver one zinger of a line, you know? Cause that's the casting director's job is to know, to know all these diamonds in the rough. The, the, the directors, the filmmakers, they know the Brad Pitt and Pitts and Leonardo DiCaprio's of the world. It's these smaller actors that they, you know, you, they need to find to populate their films. And that's where casting directors and stuff come in. Uh, so yeah, I think that will do it for Mailbag. Let me just see if there were any others. There may have been one more. Mailbag, Mailbag, Mailbag. Oh yeah, these did come in. 
we talked about, yeah, we talked about Cheyenne Army Hammer last week. Blah, 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 blah. We already did that. William Van Beek. Hey, Jeff, who's an actor or actress, directors also apply, who have generally done work you dislike to then come out with a new project that turns you around on them or makes you at least think that they have a decent amount of talent? Oof, that's a tough one off the top of my head. Shit. An actor or an actress whose work I typically didn't like, and then I was like, oh, my, man, they were actually really good. Hmm. You know what? I got to think on that one. That, 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 is, that is too tricky a question, William, to just fire out off the top of my head. I, I wouldn't say that there are actors who I'm like, oh, yeah, I don't, I don't know. It's tough. Yeah, I got, I got to think about that one, William. Uh, but anyways, thank you for, for, for writing in. Um, I, I got to do a better job maybe looking at these mailbag questions ahead of time so I can actually plan out the answers. Uh, let me just check the breaking news here. See if there's anything that just hit. Oh boy. Uh, do, 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 do. No, not really. I think. Oh, wait a second. Wait a second. There is something big. We do have some breaking news here. A24 to produce Ari Aster's next film, Disappointment Boulevard, starring Joaquin Phoenix. Huh. So I think we'd already heard the Joaquin stuff with Ari Aster. I think I thought it was a different project though, or maybe it was just operating under a different title. Uh, what does it say? An intimate decades spanning portrait of one of the most successful entrepreneurs of all time. Hmm. Interesting. Don't really know. Hmm. Don't really know what the hell that's referencing, but Joaquin Phoenix, Ari Aster, A24, can't really go wrong there. Uh, yeah. Congrats all around to everybody and to Justin Kroll for bringing that story. Um, that'll do it. That'll do it. We're, we're a little bit uh, over time now. So thank you for watching episode 72 of the Snyder Cut. Uh, I'll see you next week and stay safe out there. And also, you know, I posted something on Twitter. A friend of mine, 34-year-old friend, his kidney, his kidneys are failing. He's on dialysis right now. So he's, he needs a kidney. Now, I'm not a match. Maybe you are. He's looking for someone with O-type blood. Doesn't matter if it's positive or negative. If this is something that, you know, is in your heart, you're, you're interested in doing, let me know. Um, you know, he's also open to like a, a package deal. So like, you know, maybe his wife is willing to give her kidney, but she's not a match, right? And you're willing, and maybe your mother needs a, a kidney, but you're not a match for her. So you may be a match for my friend and my friend's wife may be a match for your mother, you know? So there's all kinds of, you know, different things that they can do with these kidney do uh, donor donations and stuff like that these days. So, you know, if you have that in your heart and, and it's a big ask, uh, let me know. You can always DM me, find me on Twitter, Instagram, you know, at the insider, et cetera. Yeah, just, mm, we, 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 you don't have anything if you don't have your health and uh, yeah, just stay safe out there, guys. Wear those masks because this is still far from over. Get a vaccination. I'll look into it. I know uh, I, I got to do it soon. Um, that's it. Have a wonderful weekend. Take care.